I'll bet you didn't think we'd ever be talking on this show about fermented horse milk. Yes, fermented horse milk. It's called kumis. And not only that, we'll be talking to someone in Mongolia about fermented horse milk. Stick around for that. Plus, a funny thing happened on the way to the pick six at Santa Anita recently, and it has some horse players scratching their heads. In the Gate is coming up next. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which also services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Back in March, the Dalai Lama, the spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhists, told American comedian John Oliver that he had a way to reduce the widespread problem of alcoholism in Mongolia. And why wouldn't he? The Dalai Lama said that he had encouraged people to switch from vodka to another alcoholic drink, fermented horse milk. Yes, that's right, fermented horse milk. The stuff is called kumis, or A-rag. Not A-rod, A-rag. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can get healthy and drunk at the same time? We might as well make ice cream sundaes the fifth food group. Cow's milk has more fat and protein than horse milk, but mare's milk, before fermentation, has 40% more natural sugar, lactose, than cow or goat's milk. So, when it ferments it does create an alcoholic-type beverage. However, kumis doesn't have nearly the alcohol that vodka does, between 0.7 and 2.5%. It does have nutritional value, though, improved digestion, added resistance to infection, better overall metabolism, cleaning the kidneys, and more. Mare's milk also has lots of vitamins, like A, B1, B2, and B13. But you wouldn't want to drink it when it's unfermented. Straight out of the horse, milk is, well, let's just say it's a very strong laxative. Kumis, or Arag, showed up as far back as Genghis Khan in the 1200s, and possibly even earlier. Attila the Hun supposedly favored Kumis as well. That would make sense, considering the Huns were expert horsemen. A German POW in World War II said he was dying of tuberculosis, but when he was finally freed from captivity, a Kazakh shepherd treated him with horse milk, and he recovered. Now this man's family are horse breeders in Germany, and they even manufacture popular cosmetics that have mare's milk in them. Now you see Kumis showing up in Australia, Italy, Belgium, and the Netherlands as well. Another thing. Kumis doesn't last very long coming out of a mare. It spoils in just a few days. Kumis's season, so to speak, is now, mid-June through about mid-October. Yes, there are efforts to improve the storage of Kumis, but it's been tough to do. An effort to create a powdered version, like evaporated milk, are underway in Kazakhstan. And why wouldn't they be? 
So what does kumis taste like? It's thicker than cow's milk with a little fizz due to the fermentation process, and it tastes a little sour. Some say it tastes like yogurt mixed with beer. Still want to try it? Is fermented horse milk really the panacea the Dalai Lama claims or hopes it'll be? To learn about kumis, we've reached out to Mogi Badral Bantoy, who lives and works in the capital of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. He does just what we need right now, gather and disseminate news regarding Mongolia to people like us. Look long and hard enough and you'll find the right person for anything, and we welcome Mogi Badral Bantoy to win the gate. How common is it for people to drink kumis, also known as air rag, in places like Mongolia? Well, kumis or aydik is it's what's called in Mongolian. Well, it's a Central Asian thing. It's part of the nomadic culture. It's very traditional, very old. I'm, I'm sure it was created thousands of years ago. And it's still regularly made. Uh, it can only be made at home. At home meaning, you know, in a nomadic tent uh, or gear is what it's called in Mongolian because it has to be fresh. It has to be fresh from the, from the mare and it has to be fermented fresh and it, because it goes sour very easily. So it cannot be uh, commercially, it's hard to commercially produce it because it has a very short shelf life. Well, all right, you said it goes sour. So before it goes sour, what does it taste like? Um, it's, um, very sour. It's a very acquired taste. And all of the foreign tourists who, you know, tasted it first say it's very disgusting. <laughs> but, um, anyone who's Mongolian, uh, um, they are used to it. They love drinking at it. And it's not, the alcohol content is not very high, but it's very nutritious, you know, being uh, fresh, you know, organic, you know, not farm-produced uh, mare's milk, so it's very uh, healthy. Traditionally, it's made during uh, late summer to autumn when the uh, horses give birth to foals. And during that time, you know, herders, they don't even uh, eat meat during that time. They drink iraq, they drink, eat their uh, dairy products, and, you know, sort of a cleansing period, um, they don't slaughter any sheep or cows during that period. So they don't mix milk with meat. I know a thing or two about that as well. But right. the people there don't think, oh, my God, I'm drinking milk from a horse? Well, it's like, um, you know, a German guy saying, you know, oh, oh, oh I'm glad I'm drinking wheat. <laughs> now, nobody gets surprised, of course. It's a very traditional drink. It's, it's sort of like the Mongolian equivalent of a beer. Well, yeah, that was my next question. Does it, it's thought more of a beer, or is it more like a wine? Well, beer, I guess. Beer is, beer is obviously has less alcohol than, than wine, so um, it's sort of like our beer. So what kind of effect have you seen it have on people's health? Um, nobody really gets drunk from it. It's about two, three degrees, depending on how fermented it is. So you really, you get a little buzz. You get a little buzz, but it's not enough to get you drunk, really. And you can't drink it in mass. So it's very filling, unlike beer. You know, beer you can drink until you pass out, but um, Eric, it's, it, you sort of get, your stomach becomes full, you feel like you're filled, 
So nobody drinks it more than, you know, three, four liters at a time. Because your stomach gets full and you don't feel hungry. And nobody drinks it till you, till you even get drunk. Nobody can, really. <laughs> We're talking with Bogi Badral Bontoy, the founder and CEO of Cover Mongolia, and why wouldn't we be? Now, given the <laughs> limitations of this drink, the time frame and the freshness factor, what do you make of the assertion by the Dalai Lama that kumis is a way to wean the people off vodka? Well, Dalai Lama is not incorrect. But uh, obviously, it's going to take more than the Dalai Lama's uh, teachings to uh, get people off the off the vodka. <laughs> but they did sort of encourage people to um, switch from hard liquor to softer alcoholic beverages, and you know, Ida is one of one that can fit that description. And the way it's translated into Mongolian is can also mean that you should recall beer in Mongolian. It's called yellow Ida. Yellow Irag, interesting. So uh, I think a lot of people can can also sort of understand that uh, maybe maybe the Dalai Lama is encouraging us to also drink beer instead of vodka. <laughs> well, oh by the way, how big a problem is alcoholism in Mongolia? Um, it was very prevalent in the early nineties. It's all connected to Mongolia transitioning from uh, from a communist economy to a democrat democratic market economy. So uh, during that time of transition, a lot a lot of people lost their jobs. There was a lot of unemployment, and alcoholism, you know, follows um, economic uh, troubles and uh, unemployment. So you know, Mongolia has gotten better from from that period. Um, our economy can be bad or good, but it's uh, on average uh, from the early 90s, the economy has improved. So along with the economy, the troubles of alcoholism has has gone down significantly. And, you know, words, you know, teaching from the Dalai Lama and, you know, our politicians encouraging us to switch from hard liquor to Heidegg is, is also encouraging. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty big problem in the 90s, but it has significantly improved since then. All right. Why horse milk? Could you ferment cow's milk and make an alcoholic beverage from that? Wouldn't that be a bit more universally accepted? Actually, we do have something, alcoholic beverage, that's made from uh, a cow's milk. So um, and that would be the equivalent of our wine. So cow's milk is usually... Well, you drink whatever you can, and then what's left over, you make it into yogurt, and you drink your yogurt, but uh, there's a lot of yogurt left over. So you, the leftover yogurt is also fermented even further and distilled, and the clear liquid that comes out of it is roughly alcoholic content. It could be between 10 to 20 degrees. And it looks very clear. So that's the equivalent of our wine. So we do make whatever alcohol we can make from any kind of um, milk we can find. And by the way, don't drink unfermented horse milk, because I'm told it's an extremely strong laxative. Yikes! But if you want to improve your metabolism, cleanse your kidneys, improve your resistance to illness, repair your cardiovascular system and gastrointestinal system, all while feeling the buzz... 
Irag Kumis might be for you. And Mogi <laughs> Badral Bontoy, thank you so much for a few minutes. And bottoms up with fermented horse milk. My pleasure. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, we'll examine an interesting situation that involved a pick-six ticket at Santa Anita recently. Don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. Much of the racing world was focused on Belmont Park during the afternoon of the Belmont Stakes. Many California horse players were interested in New York that day as well, since trainer Bob Baffert brought four of his big stars eastward, and all four won. But the news back at Santa Anita that day, Belmont Day, concerned the final race on the card, a five-and-a-half furlong maiden claiming event. Flight of Mars, the jackpot horse moves up strongly. It's Flight of Mars. Having a real crack at Lucky with you coming past the 16th pole. They're clear of. He does it in style. Flight of Mars just in the front from Lucky with you close to the wire. And the pick six jackpot pays out. Flight of Mars has beaten Lucky with you half a length. Flight of Mars, trained by Peter Miller, was one of the shorter priced horses in the race at five to one. Nothing unusual there, and Peter Miller has been among the leading trainers at the great race place for much of 2017. By virtue of Fly to Mars's win, exactly one ticket hit the pick six that day for almost $900,000. However, it was revealed just 15 minutes or so before that race that Fly to Mars, a three-year-old who was making his first start of the year and second lifetime start, was a first-time gelding. Usually, horses are gelded the removal of a male horse's testicles, to make them more manageable, trainable, and presumably raceable. That would have been interesting information for horse players to have when betting that race. It certainly drew the attention of the stewards at Santa Anita, but when asked by a reporter about the situation, the Santa Anita stewards directed questions to the California Horse Racing Board. So, we've reached out to a member of that board, Mike Martin, for the CHRB's perspective. And Mike Martin is nice enough to join us here for a few minutes here on In the Gate. What did you think when you learned of Fly to Mars's situation? Well, I thought was, oh no, not again. <laughs> uh, we've been trying to, you know, we, we've been trying to deal with this issue for any number of years, and we've had it before the board, I think, four times, and uh, there've been various proposals at the start of the whole process back in the '90s, I think it was. I don't believe there was any, I, it's hard for me to remember the rules that keep that big to get revised, right? But I think at the start, there was no penalty within the rules. Uh, it was just uh, the discretion of the steward, and I think the average penalty was uh, $200 if a trainer uh, didn't report the accurate sex of the horse at, at entry time as, as required by the CHRB rule. And then uh, there were about... My recollection is there were about 50 violations of, of Rule 1865, altering the sex of the forest at that time. It was on the late 90s, and, and it was clear that we had to uh, get people's attention, get this thing resolved. There were some various steps taken. Uh, we, we had entry cards stamped at the entry booth saying, report sex of horse, you know, like big flag, you know. And we had the, uh, the examining vets, the, the morning of the race, looked, uh, looking to see the sex of the horse, but they kept slipping through the cracks. 
And uh, so the idea was, okay, let's put the onus on the uh, on the trainer and let's bump that fine up to five hundred. That's my recollection. Let's fine, bump the fine up to five hundred dollars. So we tried that, and 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 sure enough, the number de- dropped to about uh, I think forty four in two thousand seven, and then uh, and then in two, by two thousand eleven it was down to eighteen in the state. So it was working, but it didn't eliminate the problem. And so at that time, the, the board said, okay, let's, there was basically three choices which before them. You could increase the fine again, or you could uh, have the horse scratched. It wouldn't compete. Or you could uh, have the horse run for first money only and not be a wagering interest. And the board chose to increase the fine to $1,000. Thought, okay, this will do it. This will finally do it. And sure enough, the numbers has continued to drop. Uh, I, I haven't done a, a search of the database uh, on this, but a couple of friends at Santa Anita who were there every day in press box thought this was the first time they could remember at this at the meet, which had been going on six months now, that uh, that this had occurred. So it, it's obviously a greatly reduced number. But it still hasn't eliminated the problem, has it? And that's why I said, oh, no. You know. And so uh, it's going to go back before the board in July. And I am convinced that this was the last chance on, on it as far as uh, uh, giving a horseman a chance to, to deal with the problem of, uh, without requiring the scratch of the horse. They don't want the horse scratched because, you know, they the owners have, paid money to, to have the horse trained. They paid money for the medications, getting it ready to run. And it was always a concession to the owners that you don't want to scratch the horse. But I think finally time has run out on that. And and I believe that at this next go-around, the, there will be uh, at least four votes on the seven-member commission, or six right now. There's one vacancy. I believe there will be the uh, number four votes to make this uh, automatic scratch if the uh, sex of the horse is not announced prior to the first race. Now, let me see if I have this right, Mr. Martin. Horses gelded on the premises of a California track must be reported within 72 hours of the operation. Horses gelded off the track must be reported to stewards at the time the horses entered to race. Now, first of all, with regard to this particular violation... When do you think the CHRB will determine the fine for Peter Miller? There'll be an investigation uh, by the CHRB investigators and a complaint filed because uh, whatever the circumstances, this was not reported at the time of entry, and this horse was was off the premises. All indications are it was gelded off the premises, so the time to report it would have been a time of entry. It was not done, so you know, that means the complaint. Uh, there will be an investigation and complaint filed. Now, that investigators, I, I don't know where, they, where they, this is in terms of their work, their work schedule, uh, whether it's going to take two days or, or two weeks or, or whatever for them to complete that part of it. But at, at some point, they will uh, complete the investigation, they'll file a complaint, and then the stewards have to put it onto their hearing schedule. Give give this to all parties. So I I mean I would think we're you know at, at least three weeks a month away from from any kind of hearing. I would think 
Mike Martin of the California Horse Racing Board is nice enough to join us here on In the Gate. You mentioned the stewards. When the issue that we've been discussing came to light that day, the three stewards at Santa Anita said they requested guidance from the CHRB on how to deal with this kind of issue in the future. Um, what would make them say that? Because they feel uh, uh, up. I think it was their inclination to, to scratch the horse. If they could do what they want without respect to the rules, which obviously they can't, right? If they could do, have done what they wanted to, they would have scratched the horse. But you read the rule, 1865, anyone that wants to go to the CRB website can see rule 1865, and it, does, it says nothing about scratching the horse. So if they scratch the horse, uh, the, the owners of that horse would, <laughs> you know, could, could sue them, could sue the board, right? They say, what are you doing? You didn't have a rule that authorized you to scratch that horse. So they felt stymied by this. And so they basically have asked the board, would you please, essentially they're saying, would you please revise the rule so that we can scratch the horse? They can't revise the rule. It's, it's got to be the board that does it. Well, I know this may sound like a silly question, but aren't they supposed to know the rule? Oh, they do know the rule, and they looked at the rule, and then they they couldn't grab the horse. They, they they said that we were, we were, we had to let the horse run, which is which is true. The rule says nothing about scratching the horse. They they do that, yes. But the, what they're saying is, please help us in the future. Let's get this rule changed. That's what that's essentially what they're. That's my interpretation of what they asked for. Only a few states have rules for who is responsible for reporting things like a horse being gelded and when that has to happen relative to a horse being entered to race. In Kentucky, the rule says the reporting must happen promptly, whatever that means. Now, how concerned are you about public confidence in the product in an issue like this? For one, I've been pushing for stronger penalties for the 25 years that I've been with the board, so I'm very concerned. Don't get a vote, but I've been pushing for harder uh, penalties. I'm probably as responsible as anyone for getting this back on the board agenda uh, those four times, because I hear the outcries when this happens. So I, I'm very sensitive to it, and I, I alert the executives that you know there's a, this is back, this is this is back again, and we need to put it back on the agenda for discussion again to see if we need uh, tougher penalties. Now, what we we heard at, at some of the those hearings, at those discussions, is uh, some people saying, "Oh, this is uh, overblown. People don't care if the horse is gilded. Most states don't even have a role of covering this." And to our board's credit, here in California, they they say it is important, but they didn't resolve it the way that some would have had them resolve it by having by going as far as to have the horse scratch. Important, but they kept hoping that the process could be improved to eliminate this. And, and they were like almost right. It's been greatly improved, and it's a very small number of occurrences now. But as this shows, even one occurrence is too many. And I think the, the commissioner realized that now. And that's why I think uh, in California, we're going to go to the scratch. If, if other states don't consider it that important, well, we have no jurisdiction there. But in California, I would say we're going to come July, start the regulatory process to go with the scratch. I'm, I'm fairly confident of that. I don't get a vote, but I, I think there will be four votes. 
Well, thank you so much, Mr. Martin, for taking a few minutes to share this perspective with our audience. Thank you. Thanks for calling me. Our thanks again to Mike Martin and to Mogi Badral Bantoy. The Belmont Stakes was a fine event, won by the much-deserving Taprit, but the talk was of the pair who did not race. No always dreaming the Derby winner, no sign of cloud computing, even though their trainers call Belmont Park their base. The reason is that horses nowadays don't run as often. They start once a month and often less frequently. It isn't natural anymore for three races in five weeks after a colt has fought to reach the Kentucky Derby. But would it spoil a vast eternal plan to space out the Triple Crown with four weeks between each race for horses to rest? I think a Triple Crown win would be harder since the stars would run each time and one who wins it would undoubtedly beat the best. The current schedule has only been around since 1969, so clearly the timing is not just etched in stone. But if you call the parent companies of any of those three races, it's a good bet you'd never get them on the phone. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well, which services the iTunes Store and TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.